You make a pastor proud coming out in the rain. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I know it requires more. We continue our survey of Joseph called Living with integrity. So what does integrity mean? Doing what's right when no one is watching. That's a good definition, a good application of it. Anybody else have another one? Let me hear that one back there first. An agreement between your belief and your behavior. Very good. And there was one from over here. Same. Okay. <laughs> Okay, very good. I'm trying to figure out who to give the gold stars to. But, but I think we want to reflect on that in our own lives, don't we? Is there agreement between what I say I believe and what I show I believe? And which one is more powerful? Today's message is entitled Repentance. The theme verse, if you take out your outlines, I've chosen from Luke chapter 3, verse 8. It's very succinct. Prove the way you live, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Prove by the way you live. The word repentance, the English word repentance, is translated uh, from two different Greek words, but they're essentially the same in different tenses and forms. <coughs> there's metanoio and there's metanoia. And they both mean essentially this, to think differently or to think afterwards. In other words, a sense of regret almost. To change one's way. In particular, changing one's way of life as the result of a transformation of thought and attitude. That occurs by illumination especially with regard to sin and righteousness. And it happens as a result, not of just sheer willpower, but rather of revelation of truth, a new understanding of God, and of your own behavior. You see the difference? There's a difference between deciding to do something and having truth revealed that then changes you. Last week in Genesis 42, yes, speaking in tongues over there, is there an interpreter? We focused on Joseph testing his brothers to determine their character and integrity prior to revealing his identity and attempting reconciliation. Did you think that was cruel of him? Why not? He wanted to know the truth. He, he, he was not convinced of his brother's change, of their repentance. So the testing continued. He had allowed his brothers to return home to Canaan. He gave them food for the family though he kept one of them in prison. Which one? Simeon. Simeon. Simeon remained in prison in Egypt. 
So we begin in chapter 43, but I'm going to just fly over the tops of 43 um, because we're going to really look closer at 44 today. 43 verse 1 on page 39 in uh, the Bible available here. But the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. When the grain they had brought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah, now Judah's not the elder son. Who was the elder son? Reuben. We don't know why Reuben is not visible, not, not vocal here. Reuben's, Judah's actually the fourth son in birth order. Now, Reuben sinned against his father, but Judah committed sins as well. But anyway, for whatever reason, we may uncover a reason, Judah becomes the spokesman. But Judah said, the man, who's the man? Joseph. The man was serious when he warned us, you won't see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you send Benjamin with us, speaking to Jacob, we will go down and buy more food. But if you don't let Benjamin go, we won't go either. Jump to verse 8. Judah said to his father, send the boy with me and we will be on our way. Otherwise, we will all die of starvation, not only we, but you and our little ones. I personally guarantee his safety. You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Then let me bear the blame forever. Now, who suggested selling Joseph? Which one? Judah, the very one who's volunteering to ensure the return of Benjamin. He's the one who offered, suggested that they sell Joseph in the first place. Verse 15. So the men packed Jacob's gifts and doubled the money. That was the money that had been put back in their sacks. Remember, they were shocked to see it there and really afraid after they saw it. And headed off with Benjamin. They finally arrived in Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. Now, I'm going to skip down, but I'll just summarize these next verses. They were invited to a dinner at Joseph's palace, but they thought it was a trap. They were afraid they were going to be brought in there and captured and enslaved. So, afraid of enslavement, Joseph wasn't in the room. They eased up to Joseph's household manager, and they said, look, we found this money in our sacks. We don't know how it got there, but we brought it back, and we brought more money to buy more food. And so here's the manager's response at verse 23. Relax, don't be afraid, the household manager told them. Your God, the God of your father, must have put this treasure into your sacks. I know that I received your payment. So see, he was in on the plan. Then he released Simeon and brought him out to them. Now, Joseph invited the brothers into the palace, summarizing again this verse 32. But he didn't sit with them. He sat at his own table. He put them at another table, 
and the other Egyptian officials that dined with Joseph, they didn't sit with either group. They sat at their own table. You know why? They didn't want to eat with Hebrews. They knew Joseph was a Hebrew. You know, the extent of racism is shocking, isn't it? Joseph was actually over these other officials in authority, and yet they would not eat with him at his table because of their deep, deep racism. Verse 33. Joseph told each of his brothers where to sit, and to their amazement, he seated them according to age from oldest to youngest. What's the reason theologically? I don't know. <laughs> Neither does anybody else. But it was surprising. So I guess he just wanted to knock them off stride a little bit, surprise them a bit. And Joseph filled their plates with food from his own table. It may have been that the, the staff didn't want to serve the Hebrews either. But he fed them from his own table, giving Benjamin five times as much as he gave the others. Now, why did he do that? You think he's trying to provoke their jealousy? Perhaps. Perhaps, because they have probably lived continually for the last 22 years with their father favoring Benjamin over all of them. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Now we want to see from chapter 44 how to recognize repentance. See, Joseph continues to demonstrate for us. Remember, everything written in the Old Testament is written for us today. That's what Romans tells us. But we have to understand how it applies to us because there's some cultural differences, but there aren't any human nature differences. We think and act the same, though in different settings. So Joseph is continuing to demonstrate steps to reconciling a broken relationship. When someone has hurt you, all of us have been hurt, but apologizes, do we withhold forgiveness? What do you think? What do y'all think? Y'all are quiet back there. I can see all of you. Should you withhold forgiveness? We don't withhold forgiveness at all. Because we forgive not based on that person's behavior. We forgive based on Jesus' behavior toward us in forgiving us. See the difference? Now reconciliation, we looked at this last week, is not the same as forgiveness. So we forgive instantly even before it's asked. Even if it's not requested. But reconciliation is a different matter where we do look for a change in character where we do observe responses, where we watch actions to determine whether change has occurred. And I said last week that sometimes because of what the, you know, the psychological term, we may be sick of hearing, but it's appropriate, out of our own codependence, we're really, we're really being driven by our own need 
So we immediately reconcile. But unfortunately, some of us go in circles. Reconcile, broken relationship. Reconcile, broken relationship. Reconcile over and over and over because you never wisely observed before stepping into the same situation again. When repentance has occurred, the person who hurt you first will answer accusations humbly. So Joseph has formulated another test that will include direct confrontation so he can see how they respond. Chapter 44, verse 1. When his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to his palace manager. Fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry. And do it again. Put each man's money back into his sack. Did it for a second time. Then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack. Along with his money for his grain. Along with the money for his grain. He's targeting Benjamin. So the manager did as Joseph instructed him. So he's repeating the ruse. But he's doing something a little different. See, the last time he gave them this money, but he didn't get to see their response. They, I don't, who knows, did they go farther? Did Joseph not sin? Was he not clear about they should be caught? But they saw it, but it was on the way home. So there wasn't any ability to observe their actions. So this time the plan will include seeing their response. Verse 3. The brothers were up at dawn and were sent on their journey with their loaded donkeys. But when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph said to his palace manager, chase after them and stop them. When you catch up with them, ask them, why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's it actually says in Hebrew, my master's cup. But, but silver's not there in this instance. But it is the same cup. Which he uses to predict the future. We don't know whether he predicted the future with that cup or not. He certainly could predict it from what God told him. What a wicked thing you have done. So in verse 6, the palace manager caught them. And he confronted them as he was instructed to. And here's their response at verse 7. What are you talking about? The brothers responded. We are your servants and would never do such a thing. Didn't we return the money we found in our sacks? We brought it back all the way from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If you find his cup with any one of us, let that man die. Now, theft wasn't punished by death either under the Old Testament law or under the Egyptian law. So this is above and beyond here. And all the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. See, he was so sure. They were so sure of their innocence that they offered for one of them to die and the others to be enslaved. That's fair, the man implied, replied. But only the one who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go free. Now, here's what I want us to see, though. 
they responded to the accusation by offering an explanation honestly and I think humbly. They didn't express any angry outrage over the accusation, though they felt it was false. The way a person responds to confrontation reveals whether repentance is occurring. When we repent, and remember I said repentance is not just an act of the human will. Repentance is a result of illumination by the Spirit and conviction by the Spirit. So when we repent, we have a great awareness and remorse over our guilt. So we don't become angry even when an accusation of wrong is excessive or unfair. An enraged denial suggests guilt, not innocence. Because if you are innocent, why so upset? When questioned about an offense, do you become angry or defensive? A repentant person will also accept examination willingly. I think that may be my grandson talking on this side this time. He's speaking in tongues. Verse 11. They all quickly took their sacks from the backs of their donkeys and opened them. The palace manager searched the brother's sacks from the oldest to the youngest. He's setting up the drama, isn't he? And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. He was aware of the plot. He's waiting till last, letting it build. When the brothers saw this, they tore their clothing in despair, an Old Testament um, gesture of anguish. Then they loaded their donkeys again and returned to the city because of the promise they'd made that they would be enslaved. Now, the point that I think for us is it says the brothers eagerly opened their sacks because they were sure nothing stolen would be found there. But it was. Their willingness to be examined was evidence of their innocence. They were innocent. They were being tricked. I don't know why they weren't remembering, hey, it got in there before. We better be careful. But they were so sure. When we're accused of some wrong, dishonesty, immorality, Immediately allow your accuser access to your sack. Now, what would be an application of that today? What would be your sack today? Say it louder. Email. Email. What'd you say? Phone. Phone. Yeah. Phones. What else? 
Computers, what else? Your house, sure. What else? But I'm thinking more, they can look in your car. Phones, computers, checkbooks, mail, email, online accounts. That's you saying, take a look in my sack. If, you, if your spouse wants to know your passwords, the passwords to your devices, do you give them? If not, why not? Why not? Because offering access presents proof of innocence. And you know what? It also provides protection from temptation. Now, this may cause y'all all to stop sending me emails in the office and letters, but my assistant has access to everything that comes into me. That's a protection for me and you. My wife has, knows all of our numbers. And that's hard to do. <laughs> but what are we holding? Why are we keeping secrets from the people closest to us? Certainly our spouses, but even our children. I'm not saying your children need everything that's personal. Some things may be too intimate and private. But if your child asks a question, do you answer it honestly? Or do we shut them down? Offer access. It's proof of innocence. It's protection from temptation. When someone is demonstrating repentance, they will also admit sin honestly. Now, let me back up. I'm not, uh, some of you will say, well, by the time you reach the, the uh, parking lot, you'll say, well, Perry told me to release all my company's information. N no. <laughs> and then you'll find a reason to disregard everything I say. No, I'm not talking about your company's human resources files. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I'm talking about particularly things you share, like we named. Phones, online accounts, email, those kinds of, those kinds of things, computers. So if someone is repentant, they will also admit sin honestly. Chapter 44, verse, verse 14. Joseph was still in his palace when Judah and his brothers arrived and they fell to the ground before him. That's the third time they fulfilled the prophecy, the dream. What have you done, Joseph demanded? Don't you know that a man like me can predict the future? Judah answered, oh my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? Now look at this. This sentence seems inconsistent. God is punishing us for our sins. My Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves. All of us. Not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. It's almost like Judah says something he doesn't mean to say. Because it doesn't appear consistent. He's defending that, that we didn't steal anything. What can we tell you so that you'll believe us? And he sticks in there. This is God punishing us. So it's his awareness is actually being voiced. 
These men had changed. Judah expressed guilt not for stealing because he didn't. He did, they didn't steal the money. They didn't steal Joseph's cup. Even so, they believed God was using this situation to punish them. To expose their sin. Do you think God ever uses unrelated circumstances to expose sin? Do y'all? I think he does too. I think he does too. I think God will use whatever he needs to use to get our attention, to convince us, to convict us. He'll use a friend. He'll use some inanimate object, some situation. I think God will use whatever he needs to expose sin that we are hiding within. They were innocent of this particular offense. But they were guilty of far greater sin. Selling their brother, which they thought led to his death. The brothers were willing to be punished by enslavement. But not for theft of money, for theft of their brother's life. So even though they were dealing with Joseph and this whole idea of the money and the, and, and the cup, they knew God was pressing them about what they had done so cruelly 22 years earlier. We repent when the Holy Spirit exposes our sin. Now, I'm not saying that just humanly we can't logically say, oh, I'm going to decide to admit this. But there's a, there, and that's a good thing. But I'm telling you that when the Holy Spirit does it, there's a revelation that happens that you're not debating anymore. You suddenly know this is wrong and I want to be right. In fact, we see ourselves as God sees us. Now, I don't think the Holy Spirit shows us everything all at once. I think that would cripple us. I think he measures it out. But he shows here's something to deal with. And when the Holy Spirit is in on it, you don't debate it. Because suddenly it's truth in you. You don't justify it. You don't excuse it. You don't minimize it. You don't blame anybody else. It's undeniable. And we confess willingly. Because we want to rid ourselves of the behavior that has not only damaged the relationship, but even more importantly, has separated us from God. And in this instance, we will accept punishment as deserved. And we don't cry, that's not fair. That's not fair. So if somebody's always pushing back, I'm not sure whether repentance is going on. When we're confronted, do we confess our guilt and accept our correction? Or do we try to get out of it some way? Try to escape? Verse 17. No, Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. And the rest of you may go back to your father in peace. 
You see, another, another bit of evidence re to recognize repentance is we will see authentic change through actions. Not just words, actions. Then Judas stepped forward and said, that's verse 18, but we're going to jump all the way to 30. And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving, white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. Now remember, who recommended that Joseph be sold? The one doing the talking. Here, he's most concerned about returning Benjamin to his father, Jacob. Now, do you think the father preferred Benjamin? Maybe even more. Because Benjamin was born as Rachel died. He was born in Rachel's childbirth. And Rachel is gone now. Joseph is gone now. So there's only one remaining son of the woman that he loved, the wife he most loved. I think it's likely that he received a lot of preferential treatment as well. There may have been some other coats of many colors. There may have been a closet full of coats of many colors. After all, he sent all the brothers back, didn't he? But not Benjamin. Not Benjamin. And he told them, I have nothing. I have no one. <laughs> so they're used to being seen as second rate, as less important. But if Judah was resentful toward Benjamin because of his father's favoritism, which I think Joseph was intensifying by giving him five times as much food. See, that would have triggered them. You know what I mean when I say triggered? It's when you feel something that you felt before. Well, it felt very usual because they had been put down, mistreated, seen as inferior and by their father over and over and over and over and over. And now this Egyptian's doing it too. I think if Judah resented Benjamin, I think he would have left him. Do you? I think he would have left him. Because he can see that Joseph doesn't want to keep all of them. He only wants to keep this one that stole the cup. And Judah has a perfect way. You say, well, what he said to his father, that's right. But he could say, I couldn't do anything with this Egyptian ruler. He would have allowed Benjamin to be enslaved. But concern for Benjamin and compassion for Jacob are both evidence of a repentant heart. And then we see Judah display the clearest evidence of a changed life. Verse 33. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish 
this would cause my father. Judah offered to accept Benjamin's punishment. He would sacrifice himself so that his brother, I'm not sure they were real close because he keeps referring to him as the boy. But that's irrelevant, you see. He wanted Benjamin to be able to return home. When the Holy Spirit does a work of repentance within us, we change. We change in our thinking because suddenly now we have a new truth revealed by the Spirit. So we change in our thinking and it always results in a change in our actions. We move from being self-centered to being self-sacrificing. So here's a question. Would you be willing to sacrifice yourself so another person could be set free? Judah did this for his brother. Jesus did it for all of us. Care volunteers will be here at the front. If there's an issue that the Spirit has sensitized in you that you want to talk over, it may be something that you're ashamed of, but they'll be here and they're completely confidential. If you want a private place to, to talk with someone, you can go over to the Care Connection Room across the concourse and they'll begin t talking with you and they'll continue forward. They'll anoint you with oil for healing as well, so they'll be here as long as you need them. Father, I pray that your spirit would show us what is separating us from others, but most importantly, separating us from you. Lord, show us if there's anything that needs to be repented of so we may know a greater, deeper intimacy with you and with others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.